Hi, good morning. Welcome everyone. My name is Shatadru. We are initiating this podcast called EcoPulse, Navigating Sustainable Future. This is something we have been thinking about for a very long time. The space of sustainability is very rapidly changing. It's a very dynamic space. And this decade, we have witnessed that we are moving towards multiple different facets of sustainability, which were not witnessed in previous decades. Within that, there are two most important elements which requires deeper attention, deeper understanding. One aspect of it is related to the entire space of data. The data space is emerging as a very important and very critical aspect, even though it was there, the data was there right from the time of, you know, the Mesopotamian civilization, the Sumerians used to maintain database of agriculture. But from those 3,500 years back to BC to present time, things have shifted dramatically. Today we talk about traceability. Today we talk about agri-technology. We talk about blockchains. All this, and then you have the other dimension which is coming up is related to carbon. Carbon has become a very important element because of the different commitments made by businesses and the governments related to the scope three reductions, keeping the global climate within certain limits of 1.5 degrees to 2 degrees. All this has created a kind of question about how do these things impact smallholders? What are the ethical issues which we need to address? How does civil society organization react to that? Are the issues the same in global south compared to what we see as prioritization in you know, the West, as we call it? So all these questions for that I have today with us Ayan Banerjee. Ayan is presently the Managing Director for Asia in Practical Action, a noted global civil society organization. Ayan has graduated from London School of Economics as a development economics practitioner. He has he did his management from Columbia Business School, and he has specialized in impact investment from University of Oxford. So a warm welcome to you, Ayan. Thank you so much, Atadru. I mean, thank you so much for your very, very kind words. And uh, to be honest, it's a privilege to be able to have this conversation and first guest, as you said. We've known each other for about 13, 14 years now and kind of in one way or another, I've both admired and appreciated the work of Solidarity and your leadership in particular. Just to be clear, you know, I've always considered you as a friend, philosopher, guide and mentor. And it's it's been a great privilege to work alongside with you when, you know, the time that we worked in Solidarity. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Ayan. I mean, I think the admiration is mutual. We've learned from each other. Now, Ayan, what we, what we find, you know, it's a very interesting domain of the data. Primarily, it has been driven in the recent time by some of the legislations in Europe, for example, the European Union Green Deal, the European Union's the CS the due diligence laws, traceability in which traceability requirement is very critical. It is also driven by the you know the requirement to be net zero, and therefore each of them are driven by data. On the other hand, what we are seeing is in this data space, if I have to narrow it down to agriculture in per se, you see a two dimensions. One side is complete capturing of private sector, the space of data. They do it through innovation. They do it through, you know, privacy laws or, you know, 
various mechanisms. Uh, or on the other hand, you find another side is extreme level of data nationalism. And it could become a potential tool for autocratic control of data. Between these two extremes, somewhere there is a debate about the necessity of fairness of data. If data could be considered as a commodity, how can we consider this interplay between fair trade as it is today and fair data, which it should be? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, Shavato, because interoperable and reusable, I think the fundamental premise of that discussion has to be, who is it fair for? And who's your kind of, who are you trying to be fair to? And and, and in, in, a significant part of our work revolves as civil society, as an international organization, our interest was to protect the interests of the farmers. Sometimes farmers can speak for themselves, but very often a lot of the data that we collect as uh, the development sector, uh, that is very useful for donors and it's very useful for private sector engagement. But eventually, is the data a of a high enough quality to plow back as benefits to the farmers? So even if we talk about whether that data is findable, findable for who? Can the farmer find their own data? Do they know that three years ago what pesticides they had bought or not bought? Um, so a lot of times those the, the pieces of those data are either sitting with private sector partners, sometimes even the government, because a lot of that is under regulation, um, the land rights, for instance. Um, and, and we've struggled to even for farmers to find the basic data. And very often the question is, who's the farmer? The woman who's tilling the land or the name of a husband or a farm a father or the brother in whose land, uh, in whose name the land is, because that's what your laws ask you to do. So even the fundamental point is defining your farmer, the age profile, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of that data in itself is distorted. Uh, that data is highly incomplete, inaccurate. And the issue, therefore, is that if that data is not working for the farmer, then who is it working for? And, 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 and therefore, I think the huge, there is a huge space for, I would imagine, civil society organizations who don't have vested interests to take up that space to create an innovation uh, along those along the lines. Now, Shaladu, you mentioned uh, that uh, you know data is like a commodity, and you know it was long since I think it's almost now a cliche to say data is the new oil. But then oil is also not a good word to use because we are moving away from you know that oil and that exploitive na- nature, and you know therefore a lot of the greening it. So I think a lot of the impact washing, as it were. Uh, is is based on data. Uh, and again, while a lot of the data is useful to, you know, to report back and to promote, uh, very often, you know, we see large, uh, you know, private sector companies doing 1% of the work on some element of that, producing that huge amount of data, magnifying their uh, social returns on investments, etc., which is not really the case. So I think there is a huge space to create uh, data that works, and predominantly it should be data that works for farmers. Very interesting, uh, Ian. And, you know, both you and me have been practitioners in the space of certification and sustainability connected to certification system. Now, if I have to kind of draw some analogies from the real commodity world, agricultural commodity world with the data world, what we are seeing in the commodity world, there are like two kind of processes. One is 
to try to do some incremental changes within a kind of a liberal capitalist order where you can bring in certain changes and that's we call it as a step by step improvement or incremental improvement various certification standards are kind of testament to that which also emerge as a kind of where the governments were kind of withdrawing from the role when in the post uh, uh, 1989 1991 onwards on the other hand you are also seeing a new movement happening including fair trade which tried to create an alternative supply chain <clears throat> and that was trying to showcase that another way of doing business is possible it's another thing that it has moved in a different direction now but nonetheless the when we see the new concepts emerging today about democratic economy about an alternative economic model which would challenge the existing economic model like the producers could come together and create mechanism when i draw this analogy in the data space and see there are two possibilities one is that ngos do not or civil society organizations do not have capacity to invest funds uh develop it, this this is getting so obsolete in so quick uh, rapid space that and sometimes it is uh, by is called designed obs- obsolescence so within 2 3 year a technology will be designed to not to work further it becomes very difficult for an ngo to or a civil society organization to do that on the other hand is it possible for the farmers group the civil society to develop an alternative data ecosystem uh, as a challenge to the existing order which is kind of driven by large companies who are trying to who have everywhere we tell including the government policy space which is more enabler for such large companies to operate what would be you if you have to draw your analogy from the commodity world how would you look at it yeah so it's 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 interesting shadadu you should mention this so so i have long since wondered about this and again i have my prejudice because i believe that you know with all their faults i think the cooperative movement is actually very powerful let's say an institution through which uh, you know impact as well as you know benefits to the members uh, can be created and again there while you know a lot of uh, a lot of cooperatives particularly in india but also more widely in asia have been promoted either by traders uh uh you know as 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 a backward uh, uh integration or as as a, a channel uh there there is a huge amount of civil society influence and in also you know propagating mushrooming uh you know the farmer producer organizations in india which were all set up the one that i worked in chetna with cotton farmers was uh, you know supported by solidaridad for instance uh and again the history of cooperatives is very robust now the example Shaladri you've given is 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 very interesting because you're talking about you know the, the the social dimension of it the other side of this data story is the neoliberal entry point where you know people are constantly trying to see okay now how do we get impact investing how do we commercialize this how do we get uh, you know investments and get more investments get higher valuation uh, what does this data mean for us etc so that goes into a different trajectory almost that beaten down trajectory so in terms of well obviously governments will have a space uh, to control and regulate the data obviously um, uh, we're seeing that happening across the world uh, it's uh, whether in the more uh, i would say even the most democratic of societies happening as well as if you look at the far left um, it is bound to happen uh, so there's a space for that 
capturing of that data, uh, uh, you know, with an interest to control, but also to regulate uh, how that data is being used. There is also a space for cooperatives, I think, to better use that data because as members, they understand their members and data can be a mechanism to strengthen the cooperatives. One of the things that I learned was that sometimes we didn't have sufficient high quality data. The data is, you know, it, it has those five V's as it's called. And we didn't have, uh, you know, high density, high quality data. So farmers, even in cooperatives, were giving the data if they felt like or they said that, but we don't want to give the data. So I think we need to move to a, to a, to an innovation in data where, you know, that you set a template to say that, okay, this is the kind of data and this is what you'll get out of should you choose to share that. It's again, if I have to bring in a kind of an analogy, and I'm trying to bring in different analogies, because it's so fascinating yeah, to connect sure. with what we have been practicing, both of us, for more than a, more than two decades and what how they kind of completely you know connects with each other. For example, there has been an issue about, you know, how... When you are in, engaging with the agriculture, if you buy a particular product, you know, the, 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 the certification did not give any value to the farmers. It's now proven, various certification, with probably some exceptions of fair trade. But in general speaking, the business case was never there for the smallholder farmers. What we also find is that at least what we have experienced working with hundreds of thousands of farmers, the business case for agri-technology is also not coming out very, very clearly. I find the situation a bit like pre-fair trade time when the business of business was to do business or bring shareholders profit. There was no principle about fairness. And then irrespective of whether, whether fair trade transformed the market or not, but it created a value. Now, in the space of data, do you feel there is a necessity of another kind of a movement and which will create that value because today the space is valueless. There is no clarity about what is fairness, who should decide fairness. The most of the discussion when you have in fair data or fairness, it's all about interoperability, reduction in cost, quality of data, etc. Very technical jargon. So that's one part of my question. And the second part is, in all this whole thing, First, I think we did an injustice to smallholders by bringing in huge amount of technical jargon and certifications, which took decades for them to understand. Chain of custody, farm diary, and so on and so forth. This poor farmer had never seen those stuff, you know, that they have to do. And now we are bringing in the technical jargons, and it's sort of taking the issues completely out of their hand and placing it in the hands of few people who decides what is fairness, what is a timestamp on the data, etc. How do we ensure that, you know, the technicality is not used as a mechanism, a subtle mechanism for exclusion? Uh, no, that's a, that's a tough one because uh, technicality is always used as a tool uh, to distinguish between those who have and have not. And data is, uh, you know, an instrument or information knowledge. They are instruments of the segregation into classes. Um, uh, so, you know, data, knowledge, information uh, have also been used to, you know, create a new world order, include, including a recolonization, for instance, right? So who controls the data and where is the data control and where are the data centers, et cetera. And, and, and again, you're right, the third-party certification, I think, have had their 
value definitely because they were creating uh, a space which didn't exist before. So the, the proof of concept, the proof of value has been created. Uh, but again, it has been limited in the sense that it, it doesn't, you know, leave no one behind. For instance, if you are going to follow it, then, you know, certification has left huge number of people behind, uh, covering a very small, uh, important, but from a numbers perspective, an insignificant uh, set of numbers. I, I, I feel that there is a space for, I think, uh, civil society organizations in particular, along with, let's say, the technical, the technocrats, uh, the technical, you know, the agri-entrepreneurs, for instance, to come together and create a platform. What we will not solve, however, is the sense of capacity, because I think very few people really understand, uh, you know, if you look into the, uh, you know, people who are actually at the helm of what is data, they are either at universities with at least one or two PhDs, a step away from Nobel laureate, uh, you know, that 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 league of people really understand. Uh, but then they're far from being practitioners for most often. And most of us who are practitioners want to understand a lot of uh, the social implication, the technical terms, social impact. So for that to translate, you know, like people say, speak to me as though I'm five, is it becomes a very difficult conversation. And the question, therefore, is twofold. One is, if the value of that data, let's assume in financial terms, plows back to a farmer, uh, to somebody else, to what extent would they need to know that? So if if you can assure an element of certainty in their income, so what you cannot tell them is that this data is valuable if X, Y, Z number of things happen and the more number of variables you create, then uh, you know the, the flow of that value becomes very variable. So it has to be some sort of a, in financial terms, what we say is some sort of a swap where you swap the uncertainty of cash flows to a fixed certainty of cash flows and tell the farmers that no matter what, a bit like almost like a steady stream of income for them uh, is, is this is what we're going to be able to offer you. The risk of any innovation, whether on data or anything else, should never be sitting with the farmers simply because the risk should be taken by those who understand them or seemingly understand them more. And I think as long as the benefit is accrued to the farmers and not to, let's say, the consulting firms or the investment bankers or even the NGOs who are creating all this innovation, the larger part of the benefit you can demonstrate plows back to the farmers. I think that's a that's that's a good business case. What we have seen, whether in certification or investment banking or in consulting, is that there is a huge proliferation of multitude of benefit, multi-million dollar uh, you know, industries which are being created. And there is a the trickle-down effect of the value to the farmer is so small, it's about 5 or 10%, which means there is a 90% of the value which is being appropriated by, again, for want of a better phrase, the middlemen who are creating a lot of these, uh, you know, interesting cases. Yeah, and so it's, it's very interesting. What you are suggesting is probably a kind of a, a fair value of data which should be provided in a, in a uh, format which is easy to apply, addressing the issue of, uh, you know, ex technological exclusion. So, uh, so, and and we have seen this happening in some spaces, like uh, in in fair trade itself. You you pay a premium, uh, you pay a fixed price, and and on the top of the premium. So, are you suggesting something similar could be done if a certain kind quality of data? could be generated at the farmer pace? Yeah, absolutely. And again, well, so multiple levels, right? Obviously, there is an informed consent element to that entire conversation. So farmer must be aware 
to the extent that we are aware. So we have to say it in simple terms to say that what we are doing with the data, where we, I mean, the last thing you want is, let's say, private sector enterprises taking that pharma data and selling it and reselling it to say that, okay, this data is great value. I have 100,000 pharma database. How much are you going to pay for it? Um, and again, this happens, uh, you know, it's probably happening to you and me, you know, with our phone number or our internet footprint. Uh, so there is a lot of profiling. There are organizations which are doing it. But I think given the fact that farmers are vulnerable at-risk population, I think there is a um, there is a play for both the government and therefore regulation as well as civil society to protect those interests. Uh, and again, yes, one is obviously there should be a premium. So there should be a value that should be accrued to the farmer, whether you pay it in a sort of monthly basis or premium basis. So that value should be known to the farmer. Two, I think the, the one of the things that we have experienced, Chadadru, is that we used to go to the field to collect the data. One month later, somebody else is collecting the data. Three months later, somebody else is collecting the same data. And the farmer is just circulating the same data. And uh, in Hindi, you used to say, Habare pas kaam nahi hai sab. You know, somebody, do we not have any other work to do? Because somebody or the other is collecting the same set of data. And I think that's the element of the reusability element which becomes important. And every time anybody uses it, there should be a money or a benefit which should go back for using that data back to the farmer, either in terms of direct financial benefits, but also in terms of superior quality of services. So if I know what the farmer has purchased and that is doing a certain things about the land and we want to encourage the farmer towards a regenerative agriculture in the longer interest of the land, then we say that, you know what, you've been using XYZ pesticides and insecticides. This is what it's done to your land. Do you want to look at an alternative? Very product? interesting. I will come to regenerative agriculture in a next, in just, you know, one minute. But we have one last question on this part, Ayan, because uh, this is related to the new aspect which is coming up is uh, in the form of artificial intelligence. I was reading today about this software or, or the application called Replica where, you know, you can kind of can make the replica in such a way that it can resemble any person. So I can make you actually, you know, using your document yeah. and, it, you, and it will respond in a similar fashion that you respond. So this could be very helpful in agriculture if you can, you know, mimic some of the top scientists in the world who could be, where a farmer could ask, every farmer having their farm support or farm guru, uh, or farm professor, who, who, whom they could ask questions and they could respond. On the other hand, we face a kind of a unique dilemma. But I mean, without going into, you know, science fiction stuff, like whether the machines are going to take over, etc., like what we saw in our younger days in the Terminator movies, uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about the trolley problem. We are facing in the Google cars. The question is when the autonomous cars are moving, whether it's the driver or a child which has come on the way. The question is who programs that decision making? Similarly, in agriculture, when you have what would the if I have to look at a trolley problem here, would be uh, whether we should increase yield at all cost or we should take care of the soil and we take care of the water. Who decides that in agriculture? How do you see this dilemma? Yeah, so I, from what I know, the trolley problem really doesn't have a solution. It, it just poses a huge number of problems. And the problems are essentially the short-term versus long-term, individual versus multiple people, and kind of poses very difficult ethical dilemmas to be solved. The trolley problem requires 
the fairness treatment. From whose from whose eyes? And that, that's the exact dilemma, right? So you have from whose eyes? The question is that what's useful for let's say one farmer he may say that you know i need a cash flow tomorrow because i need to marry off my daughter uh you know there are there are dowries which in the social uh el- element now somebody will say oh well dowry in itself is wrong yeah but that's not the, not the right problem that you're solving the other element of this conversation is the governments could be saying that you know what for the state or for the country or for the region or for the crop whatever lens you take we need to look at a larger canvas but for that, you need to compensate the individual farmers. If you want people to look beyond individuals, and there is a reason why we are all individuals, then you need to compensate to say that, okay, you want to look at the greater common good, then you need to do it. Now, Shadadu, in all honesty, you and I can probably afford to do it because A, we come from a place of, let's say, privilege. You know, we are educated, we have the background, so we can give a heart, mind, soul to this. But for a farmer who's, uh, uh, you know, literally very often living on daily wages, it's a daily cost, it's daily grind. Uh, cash flows are, you know, once a, once a season, three, 90 days, 100 days, uh, or actually 120 days because they never get their money on time. It's not fair for us to probably ask them. This discussion that I said is not fair is my judgment. I should be asking the farmer, putting the trolley problem for them. I should be asking the governments. Somebody should be asking and addressing those questions that, you know, to what extent is it fair? And, uh, you know, what you rightly said is that uh, sometimes, you know, looking at the longer perspective is 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 not always beneficial. Sometimes it's very useful and helpful, but sometimes it's probably detrimental because we do, that longer term perspective never comes. As Kane said, you know, in the long term, we are all dead. So it's probably one of those things that, you know, you want to push back a decision and say it's a long term decision. But for a lot of people and especially the most vulnerable, it's probably not that much of a long term decision. That is a nice bridge to the next subject. Again, the farmers were initially only the providers of the products. Now today, this entire data ecosystem is kind of getting this tailwind primarily because of uh, these laws which were passed in Europe, the European Green Deal, European Deforestation Regulation, Due Diligence Regulation, so on and so forth. There are five or six of those you know, components to the Green Deal. And the most important one is where uh, the businesses have to you know, the directors are directly responsible for showing traceably from whether there are any violation of decent work or deforestation related issues on their supply chain. And they are personally liable uh, for in order in, in, in order to supply products to the European markets. The other thing which has also happened, mostly it took kind of a lot of momentum from the Glasgow Summit for Environmental Summit. Uh, it started from Paris, but in Glasgow, it really took the momentum where the corporate world took up this science-based target for addressing the the whole, and then they all come up with a net zero commitment, Pepsi, Nestle, 2040, uh, Unilever, everybody, all the big food companies have come up with their you know net zero commitment, some 2030, some 2040, some even 2050. Uh, the interesting thing is that it was no, the scope three has been brought in. And so there are two things which are emerging. On the one hand, there is a huge 
growth in voluntary carbon market. Now, the voluntary carbon market, again, for the ease of audience, we have to make quickly that it is like, you know, when you travel by the plane, you are asked to pay some money uh, in order to, you know, plant one or two trees so that it can kind of, uh, you know, take care of the environmental losses you are making due to the flying or due to the burning of the fuel. So it's, it's sort of that. It's a compensation. So you buy some kind of mechanism. So that's the voluntary market. And then uh, there is this insetting. So that's the offsetting part. Then there is an insetting part where a company tries to kind of clean up their own plate and basically achieve net zero within their supply chain. Now, in these circumstances, you know, come back to the situation of a farmer, which we represent in a way, working for them, both of us, these guys are suddenly feel that they are in a Star Trek movie. <laughs> so they say, guys, how do you get carbon out of air? What are you talking about? I know how to grow tomatoes. I know how to grow apple. I know how to grow potatoes. But now you are asking me to produce carbon in my farm. How do you see this situation about, you know, there this that the farmers in the South are now become custodians of not only of our food security but also environmental security is fair yeah no it's a, it's it's a, it's a very good question sharad so first and foremost i think the eu laws uh, you know all the, the the gamut of laws about the oecd due diligence etc i think they are welcome because one of the things that we had experienced we have experienced is the big guys really putting plausible deniability, saying that we don't know, you know, what's happening in the field. Okay, so there are social problems in TIA, but, you know, we don't have visibility or, you know, things are happening in the cotton supply chain in the manufacturing units. So we don't know. So we've gone from that extreme, uh, literally, and putting the laws and regulations in place, which I feel are very welcome and useful um, uh, for at least companies, the focal companies, to take a little bit more responsibility, a little bit more responsibility from uh, you know what they have done. What uh, we have not seen is the price that they should be paying for externalizing the costs. So we set up business practices and norms which were anyway deeply exploitative of the social and the environmental context in which they originated. I mean, the birth of fair trade when, was when Solidaridad and uh, Nico would have gone to see what's happening. And you cannot say that that's happening in Mexico and, you know, we're getting good coffee in, uh, uh, in, in the Netherlands and we are enjoying it. And I think a lot of that still holds true, which means uh, you're absolutely right that farmers are should be environmentally sustainable. A, the question is who's compensating for them. B, is the compensation adequate? C, if the eventual benefit of that is going to be a company to claim that, oh, we are net zero, or another country in Europe to say we are net zero, then is it fair? Because everybody has net zero emissions. And again, the moment you shift these credits across the border, you're changing the dynamics again. And and and, and, and fundamentally, if a country is doing its own activities towards net zero, the farmers, for instance, uh, then to what extent should we uh, you know, get compensated because somebody else is doing something naughty and wrong for which they need these credits to offset something else. And whether it's an offset, Shadadru, or an inset, I think these are mechanisms just to talk about traceability and through the supply chain, whether it's on the supply chain or off the supply chain, or whether, you know, we, we debated a lot about mass balance um, as well as some of those other mechanisms in fair trade. 
and essentially i think um, again the responsibility of should not be resting with the farmers because they're still figuring out the best way to grow the tomatoes the best coffee that they can produce uh, they have a lot of you know social issues so i think burdening them with additional targets because somebody else has to meet their target is probably not yeah, i mean absolutely so this is again the term fairness is the most important that keeps on coming back again and again and somehow feel that the world is getting divided into different narratives of sustainability there is a clear oecd narrative of sustainability there is a narrative of southern democracies narrative and then you have another group of who are you know like really underdeveloped they have another kind of a narrative so in this milieu the question there is an element that comes up uh, let's look at let's say the voluntary carbon market and here the issue is uh, how do you see that there's a value in itself the two issues one is the businesses are themselves governing their own mechanism because they say they hiring private auditors who are following private laws which says this is carbon because there is a tree this is carbon and private auditors who are hired by the same firm who was getting them their audit done they are saying yes you are audited and then the businesses trade among themselves while they which allows them to do horrendous practice for example in africa and buy certificates let's say from asia or the vice versa is it a fair mechanism yeah and and and, and that's a very uh, uh, pertinent question so i can tell you a couple of things one is so we've been at practical action we've been discuss, we've been doing some bit of credits for our clean cooking uh, work in nepal and then we have been doing also credit related work for our regenerative ag- agriculture in africa now very interestingly the price points of the two are very different and again under the science based target what what we we are hearing is that the formula for cleaner credits is different from the not so clean so the more nuance you add to this it gets much more complicated and two things complexity benefits those like we said earlier those who have an understanding which means even for us as even for me um to understand the nuances sometimes it's 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 just way too subtle because it's a small market these are far from perfect markets so the number of buyers and the number of sellers are limited but predominantly it's a buyers market which essentially means that the buyers are dictating the price at which it should happen whether you do that through a third party certification or a formula it essentially means that whoever is buying has a greater hold um on the sellers um uh the the opportunity to produce credits especially whether it's in you know clean energy or agriculture based is phenomenal because you know the, especially in the most uh uh underdeveloped countries predominantly agrarian societies whereas the most developed countries are predominantly knowledge or service economies so it that 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 lack of parity will remain in a defining the science based target the size of the market the size of the pricing uh and again uh shadar you are so right that uh, you know it becomes extremely hard you know in the absence of 
a regulation in the absence of homogeneity, in the absence of definitions, like I can put numbers. And very quickly, and I, I worked in the carbon markets in about 2005, very briefly, uh, one of the things that I drew between then and almost 20 years hence is that I don't see a fundamental paradigm shift, which means we have already started talking about uh, futures and options. And, and it's it's very strange because the underlying asset, the carbon market itself, is so vague, unclear, highly volatile, you know, the kind of classic VUCA in itself. And then we want to package that, you know, what we don't understand either as a black box. Some people say it's a crap box. Uh, and you put that crap and then you want to package with a lot of ribbons and put futures and options and complex exotic stuff. And then very quickly, you'll find yourself that farmers are delivering things which don't have value. There are platforms which, you know, were housed in the U.S., uh, which had credibility issues. So the question is that before we get into making it more complex, can we look for mechanisms to make it more simpler that works? Uh, and, and I think that 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 is fundamentally where we've we try to complicate things because, again, making it complex is power. But I think it's power to the farmers if we kind of make it simple and make it work for them. Yeah, and and honestly, I I mean, when I look at it, I see that there is a mechanism. Certification systems are resurrecting themselves through this carbon space. So there was a downhill journey of this traditional certification standards, and now if you look at the world of the certification, everybody is offering either a plugin or an additional element about through regenerative agriculture or through carbon any other. But the problem is, and what we have witnessed again in the last two decades or so, that the benefits of the certified supply chain, and when you use the supply chain as a mechanism or as a uh, as a leverage in order to you know push sustainability, it is always captured by you know the very large well-to-do players. Now. In carbon, again, we are reaching, my worry is, and how whether you share this worry and what would be your solution to that. I mean, I can share what I think about it afterwards, but uh, whether we would see a similar trajectory. Because as we talk, I see big industrial plantations are gearing up to face this new European Green Deal and carbon requirement, and they are well-placed. They have scientists on their payroll. They have, you know, they have their auditors on the payroll. Yeah. Is it going to become another tool for exclusion for smallholders as it goes forward? And whether, should it not be the case that this this entire carbon discussions with the net zero commitment should have also a very clear understanding that there should be a quota for smallholders in that, proportionate to their supply? How do you see that as a kind of, well, should we not should we not avoid the same mistakes we did, including you and me, two decades back? Should we do the same in carbon? Yeah, so I share your fears, Shadadru. I mean, uh, I hadn't realized it. So there are multiple levels to this, if I may say fears. Even in certification, what we saw was that there was a huge, uh, let's say, control and influence of the most powerful, you know, the it's not just the ABCDs, but anybody who controls the supply chain to have a say into that. And then they took certification and then they created their own certification or standards and diluted and distorted it. Now, carbon seems to be like the new 
the new hole to you know dig into it seems like that new interesting space and still talk about sustainability so there is a, a lot of talk through social media etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think the most again the most vulnerable are those who still don't even know what that entire conversation is again because knowledge information you said auditors power money uh, is with those and they will do almost anything to ensure that that uh, lack of parity or the status quo remains which means the small holders will remain small impoverished decision makers influencers into into this conversation uh, whose responsibility is it to bring them i would imagine that that's the best use of public money whether through the governments local governments international aid international governments i think to create a level playing field for those who are not yet on the table to have that conversation uh, it's I, I i think it's there is a role and space to play and obviously all this money has to be done in partnership with implementing civil society organization like ours uh, I, I i fundamentally believe that working with smallholder farmers is is actually the most important and complicated complex uh, challenge uh, at various levels um, and i think that's 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 where we should be looking at um, while plantations and big companies have muscle power i think that's a different uh, game uh, you know it's it's a very it's like the organized versus unorganized sectors literally um, and i think uh, the voice and the power the influence should be given to the larger majority which is actually at the bottom of the pyramid so i definitely feel whether it's a conversation on data whether it's a conversation on climate whether it's a conversation on credits i mean any kind of credits we're talking about carbon credits but we can have water credits plastic credits and you know you can keep creating those things but it should not be without those for whom we are deciding so which means you know no nothing about them should be without them and when i say them it should be the farmers uh, the smallholder farmers who are living in very abject poverty across the world and the voluntary markets where you are talking about the net zero commitments net zero commitment should also come up with a very clear and transparent understandable way uh, reporting mechanism of how they are planning to include smallholders proportionate to their you know uh, contribution in their commitment so it's not enough to say that i have i'm my x percent x, x amount of carbon is reduced but you know by whom so like what you stated yeah exactly yeah know, we should go reach out to the farmers Absolutely. Who matters? Yeah, and Jadavri, you're so right because I mean, there are two points to it. Right, one to say that I've reached my science-based target. The mechanism is important because how have you have you extorted somebody else? So you know you've solved your environmental element, but you've distorted further aggravated your social uh, uh, dimension to it. Uh, so is it coming by extortion? Is it coming by exploitation? And this is this could be economic exploitation. Sometimes it could be military social exploitation. We've had uh, governments in Middle East, uh, oil-rich governments, literally buying a uh, one-third or one-fifth of a country's land. just for the carbon credits uh, so so you know so that these are new forms of you know extortion extraction of value uh, colonization etc and you know the last thing we want is uh, you know to create new problems uh, for uh uh you know the old uh, poor countries which have been struggling especially um uh, in the agricultural context so i think that mechanism the means is extremely important how we do it 
uh, as much as the final outcome. And unless somebody tells me that, you know, somebody tells me I've earned 100 million, I said, great, congratulations. How have you earned it? Well, you know, I did X, Y, Z. So now it could be anything. It could be legal, legitimate, gray areas, or it could be just pure brilliance. Um, and my respect for that earning, very similar to the net zero, will depend on how have you acquired it. Thank you. And, and now, how do you feel about this transparent reporting mechanism? Sh- should we not have, uh, whether the civil society, do you feel, should have a role in holding these companies who have come up with net zero commitment accountable about the progress they are going to make on their net zero commitments and uh, in a transparent, understandable way of reporting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in all honesty, there are two things, right? There, are, There is this, like I said, externalizing the costs. So if you look at it from a pure balance sheet perspective, what very often we're doing is you're saying net zero, yes. But while you've acquired those credits, which are questionable by formulae and valuation, et cetera, which is questionable, and you're saying, okay, you've reached your target. But what are the other things that you've done, which is not accountable for, which is not accounted for? So there is a huge unaccounted for mechanisms in which we are doing it. So while the net zero, and it's not a fair, it's not a balanced sheet because, you know, uh, the, the accountability, the transparency, the information and the reporting of one side of the balance sheet is 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 not reflecting of the other side. Um, and this is, again, fundamentally to the way we've, we've seen society you mentioned you know pre-1971 this uh, uh, the only objective of a company the Friedman said is is to create value for the shareholders we've long since gone away from that you know we talk about triple bottom line etc etc so those are fairly discredited in modern discourse we've seen a lot of calamities and again whether it's talking about the carbon markets um, I think the level of accountability is not high enough. Uh, the level of transparency is not high enough. Um, uh, the formulae, everything is questionable. And I'm fine with it because there is a formula on the table. So that's a starting point uh, in similar ways that we started with certification to say that, look, we have some mechanisms. You can criticize it, but there is something to do with it. So there are formulae based on it. But I think there's a huge space for transparency uh, that is required when any any country, any company is reporting uh, or claiming a net zero. Because, again, the, the entire story of that credit, the journey from the origin um, uh, and very similar to how we talk about the, you know, the fair trade movement is from the origin to the destination to the claims um, is, I, th- I think, is, is, is extremely important. Thank you, Ryan. I think we, as we are coming to the close end part of our discussion, I would like to close with one question, which probably there would be many of our audiences would be from the younger generation of professionals who have decided to make development cooperation as their preferred career choice. For them, when they are looking at, let's say, the time of 2030, how do you see Given the discussion we are having, what are the issues these uh, you know young professionals need will be addressing? Uh, the world. What when I look at let's say twenty nineteen or, or twenty twenty, the issues were very different of what we are discussing today. Considering all the new dimensions which is happening and and this speed of change is even faster than what we used to witness like between 
my development career starting from the year 2000 till 2019 maybe the speed was not so much as we will witness between 2020 to 2030 uh, what would be you know uh, your analysis of of you know the development cooperation world the role of civil society should be playing by the end of this decade in 2030 and the, the young professionals should be you know be prepared for that very good question, Shadazu. Again, um, you know, at our time, you know, most people who came into uh, uh, the civil society were people who studied sociology or arts or humanities. A lot of that has changed uh, uh, over the last 10 years. A lot of people have career switches, so people with MBAs, people my, like myself or, uh, you know, people with technology backgrounds like myself, like, you know, we started with a place of passion. I think in the future, three fundamental issues, I think, 2030, or we are already seeing it, three fundamental issues will rise above all others. Issue of climate, issue of gender, and issue of technology. And when I say technology, I predominantly mean digital technology, whether it's about blockchain, AI, et cetera. And we've touched upon very interestingly about all three of them uh, in today's, and I don't know whether you had kind of crafted it that way, but again, conversation revolved around all these three issues, and I'm sure you have it. But it's not surprising that, you know, these are the three largest issues which, uh, uh, you know, the next generation. My advice to uh, uh, the next generation, and I have to apologize to them because we are actually leaving them with all the problems that we and the previous generations have created. Uh, one of the worst things to do is, you know, uh, uh, that we are probably leaving them poorer uh, as a starting point just by virtue of the gender disparity, the gaps in climate, uh, uh, you know, commitments and not meeting the commitments and technology. I mean, it's, it's it can be a tremendous enabler or a disabler, depending on how you wield that sword. My advice to them is to keep an eye on the broader spectrum. And again, that era of uh, where, you know, whether investment banking, we used to talk about, you know, it's the lies affair. You'd start looking at a society because there are elements of the society which sooner or later will influence you. Uh, COVID was a classic example where I could not say that I'm isolated from society uh, because somebody else sneezes or somebody's irresponsible in wearing the mask uh, has a direct impact on me. So that, that collective ownership, looking at a larger canvas, lo looking at a larger space is very important. And no matter what you study, and I've come to this conclusion, Shahrazan, no matter what you study, A, you need to study a bit more holistically. So we stop studying everything from class 10 onwards, and we believe specialism is important, but I think there's a space to deepen that across multiple sectors. So you need to study technology. We need to study sociology. We need to study economics. Uh, we need to study finance. And we need to build and develop on those skills because at the end of it, it's there's going to be an interplay of all of that. And again, I would very uh, strongly advocate that we should have a strong civil society because uh, civil society historically has been and should be the conscience of the society. Um, nobody gives you a mandate per se. And it's a debate, Shahrazu and Avaz, who's given us the mandate. You don't need that mandate sometimes. It's just the conscience of the society. Of course, there are differences of opinions between different organizations. Of course, there are differences of opinions between any individuals, a set of individuals, groups of individuals in different countries. But you still need that conscience. You need somebody to call out, to challenge, to address, to answer. Um, NGOs are not always activists. There are a large number of civil society organizations like where we actually do 
practical action on the ground. We in, influence things we, uh, by working with farmers with at target population. So you can choose the spectrum where you want to belong, how much of that should be advocacy, how much of that should be public policy, how much of that will be closely working with the government. Uh, but the space of civil society should not be shrunk or reduced. The space of civil society should remain. And I would say given our challenges in, in environment, given our challenges in the society, given our challenges in understanding or not understanding technology, I think the space of civil society will change and probably should grow, if anything else. That's so useful, Ayan. I think uh, for many of our younger listeners who are, you know, kind of getting initiated in the development cooperation world, this would be very inspiring. Thank you so much for your time and for this fascinating, very engaging discussion. I hope our audience, our idea is not to, this discussion was not to raise, to give answers. We were both seeking, you know, we're, we're both trying to understand a phenomena which is out there, raise questions, problematize it. Not necessarily we'll always have the answers to those questions, but collectively we can all seek these questions and answers from you. And I would be very happy to respond to some of your questions if you have here. This podcast will, you know, continue. I found it, it's a very, you know, entertaining. It is very engaging even for me. And I hope, please let us know how can we improve this podcast further. But I think with this, I think we are coming to the end of our very first edition of EcoPulse. Thank you very much to you, Ayan, once again for participating. Thank you. Very honored to be here. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.